Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find disturbing. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Can you hear me? Shut it, homewrecker! We know you Woodvilles only care about the crown! The crown? The crown has brought my family nothing but misfortune. First it took my husband, and now it's taking my sons. They're up there in the tower, alone, scared, missing their mother. And I can't get to them. Turn yourself in! Then you can join them in prison! Bastards out! I can help you get your boys, but it won't be easy. Who, who are you? A friend. Come to Pembroke. We can talk freely there. I promise your highness we'll bring them home. No matter the cost. This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. This is our final episode on the suspected murder of the Princes in the Tower. Last week, we covered generations of family drama and political power struggles, which culminated in a massive betrayal when Richard of Gloucester imprisoned his own nephews in order to seize the crown. This week, we'll dive into the months following the prince's disappearance and explore various theories as to what may have happened to the boys, including the possibility that they weren't even killed at all. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. In June 1483, after months of plotting and planning, Richard of Gloucester finally had his nephews right where he wanted them. He squirreled 12-year-old Prince Edward V and 9-year-old Prince Richard of York away in the innermost apartments of the Tower of London, far from prying eyes and their meddling mother's grasp. But while the princes were sheltered from the outside world, they were anything but safe. Richard of Gloucester had set his sights on the throne of England. However, as mandated by the royal hierarchy, the crown had to be passed to a direct heir of the last surviving monarch. By this law, both princes, children at that, were placed ahead of Richard in position for the throne. In order for Richard of Gloucester to seize the crown, one of two things needed to happen. The princes needed to be declared illegitimate, or they both needed to die. Then and only then could Richard of Gloucester assume the throne as the only living male heir of the House of York. While Richard decided what to do about his nephews, he focused on eliminating the remainder of his late brother's supporters. 
On June 10th and 11th, 1483, Richard of Gloucester penned letters to relatives and friends in York, petitioning for their support against the widowed queen, Elizabeth Woodville. In one letter, Richard accused Elizabeth of treason, alleging she and her family, the Woodvilles, had plotted to murder him. Of course, there likely never was such a murder plot. It was a story Richard of Gloucester used as a convenient way to dispose of Anthony Woodville, so he could assume custody of Prince Edward V. For all his grand accusations, however, there was little Richard of Gloucester could do to Elizabeth Woodville. She had fled to the safety of Westminster Abbey after her husband's death. So even if he had managed to charge her with murder or treason, she could not be arrested or executed as long as she remained on the church's grounds. But his letters did serve a purpose. They were Richard of Gloucester's declaration of war, one that was met with enthusiastic encouragement and support from the House of Neville. Bolstered by this endorsement, Richard of Gloucester then went after the late king's closest friends and confidants, Lord William Hastings, his mistress, Jane Shore, and his half-brother, Richard Gray. He quickly accused them of treason and intent to murder. Soon after Richard of Gloucester's indictment, William Hastings was seized and dragged out into the palace courtyard, where he was swiftly beheaded. Richard Gray would meet a similar end. Surprisingly, Jane Shore's life was spared. Instead, she received the medieval equivalent of a scarlet letter and was forced to atone for her sins through public penance. Finger-pointing and wild allegations could only go so far, however, and Richard of Gloucester soon found his campaign stalled in late June 1483. While he'd managed to remove most of the Woodville's influence in court and had control of the princes, Prince Edward V's coronation was rapidly approaching. He asked to postpone the coronation until the fall, but he still needed something more, something that could utterly annihilate the prince's claim to the throne once and for all. It wasn't long before his prayers were answered, literally by a bishop, Robert Stillington. Thank you for meeting me. I have news. I think you'll be pleased. It better be good. I feel it is only right that I share with you a grave secret. One that King Edward went to great lengths to bury. Get to the point. Well, King Edward was betrothed to another woman. Yes, the Earl of Warwick was negotiating a marriage as part of a treaty with France. But the deal fell apart. This isn't news. Clearly, this was a waste of time. I'll see myself out. No, wait. That's not... I'm talking about Lady Eleanor Talbot. Who? Who indeed? I looked into it and it looks like a marriage agreement for Edward and Eleanor was filed with the church back when you were still in your nappies. It was never enforced, but that agreement can be a binding legal contract should you choose to bring it to light. My parents traded us around all the time. How does that help me now? It means... Your brother shouldn't have been able to marry Elizabeth Woodville, so her marriage would be rendered invalid, and any heirs she bore to him would become bastards. Oh, well, well. You were right, this is good news. 
<laughs> At last, Richard of Gloucester had the irrefutable proof he needed, a secret that would destroy the Woodville's claim to the throne, paving the way for his own dynasty. With this information, Richard of Gloucester switched gears. He began recalling servants from the Tower of London, leaving the princes completely isolated and without help. And on the night before what would have been the coronation, Richard secretly convened with a minister named Ralph Shaw. In this era, clergymen were responsible for public announcements, and sermons were the swiftest means of relaying information to the masses. So, under Richard of Gloucester's supervision, Shaw penned a sermon, denouncing the princes as the rightful heirs to the throne. He planned to deliver it on the morning of the coronation in front of St. Paul's Cathedral. For the past 12 years, we have worshipped a false king. All this time, we thought a York sat upon our throne, governing our lands and commanding this great empire. But alas, it was a lie. A lie. Edward was no king. He was no noble, even. He was a bastard, disguised as a gentleman. And we bought it. He was our golden boy, our son in splendor. And he blinded us. I know what you're thinking, what you're feeling. You're angry, betrayed. Well, I am too. And so is the Duke of Gloucester. His own brother deceived him. His own mother lied to him, keeping him from his birthright, his destiny. He is our rightful heir, a true York. Together, let's end the deceit and bring an end to the Woodville's tyranny. Those princes don't deserve the throne, our faith. They deserve the tower! Yeah! The sermon worked. After a single morning, on June 22, 1483, the tide of public opinion in London began to change. While many in the crowd were perplexed by the accusations, Richard of Gloucester and his minister had sowed seeds of doubt. Soon after, he spread the secret from Bishop Stillington. Because of Edward's pre-contract of marriage, the two princes were illegitimate heirs. Prince Edward V was suddenly no longer accepted as king. The royal court had no choice. They had to agree to Richard's demand to postpone the coronation until the fall, or at least until these new claims could be investigated. But since it was such short notice, not everyone on the guest list could be contacted in time. That morning, Elizabeth Woodville waited in the cloisters of Westminster Abbey, anticipating the arrival of her sons. But something nagged at her. The pews were largely empty, save for a few guests peppered throughout. The Archbishop of Canterbury stood at the altar, crown and scepter at the ready, but the royal carriage had yet to show. As the minutes and hours ticked by, it became clear to Elizabeth that something had gone very, very wrong. In her heart, Elizabeth Woodville knew what had happened. But when news of Shaw's stunt 
reached Westminster Abbey, she broke down. She would never see her sons in regal garb. In fact, she would never see them again at all. Within days, the citizens of London were petitioning on Richard of Gloucester's behalf. By June 25th, 1483, a formal request was filed demanding that Richard of Gloucester replace Prince Edward V as king. And so, on July 6, 1483, a coronation finally did take place. But this time, it was Richard of Gloucester who walked down the aisle at Westminster Abbey, laden with gold and furs. No expense was spared in the celebration. Elizabeth felt like she was living in a nightmarish fairy tale. The villain had won. Her sons had been stolen away and locked in a tower, and she didn't know if they were even still alive. She could hear the merriment, the pomp and circumstance of Richard of Gloucester's coronation from her prison within Westminster Abbey. Her blood ran cold at the thought of the crown being placed on his treacherous head. He had taken everything from her, her home, her livelihood, but she would have her revenge. Up next, we'll learn about the rise of Elizabeth Woodville's resistance and explore the most prominent theories about the princes in the tower. And now, back to our story. Shortly after the coronation in mid-July of 1483, Richard of Gloucester, now known as Richard III, and Anne Neville settled into royal life. While the pair were off meeting their subjects and making charitable endowments, an Italian named Dominic Mancini began to make visits to the Tower of London. During his trips, he took note of a pair of princes, 12-year-old Edward V and 9-year-old Richard of York. Mancini had traveled to London in late 1482, perhaps to write a report on English theological texts. However, he arrived shortly before King Edward IV's death, And within a matter of weeks, it became clear that something far more interesting than biblical discourse was afoot. Mancini also had unique access to certain closed-door conversations and secrets. Gossip, rumors, and backstabbing swirled around him. And like any great tabloid writer, Mancini absorbed it all with great interest. Armed with a quill and parchment, he began to record the events leading up to Richard III's coronation. During his trip, Mancini observed both of the princes to be alive, at least as of June or early July 1483, noting the children often played in the tower courtyard. However, he was not the prince's only guest. A doctor, John Argentine, paid routine visits to the eldest boy, Prince Edward V. How is he? Physically, he's fine, but he's afraid, Father. It might bring him comfort if you were to see him. Happy to, but I don't know what I could do for him. I can only heal wounds. You can heal his soul. A dark shadow haunts him. He senses death is near. Death? He's still just a boy. A boy who's a threat. As long as he lives and breathes, the crown isn't secure. Richard's no fool. He won't ignore that. Poor thing. Can't we do something? We could hide them, take them far away from here, find their mother. You didn't hear it from me, but there's already a plan in place. Don't worry. 
we're going to break them out. We don't know if there was actually a plan to free the princes, but over the centuries, there have been many rumors. According to one of these speculations, the plan was simple. Jasper Tudor and his nephew, Henry Tudor, would cause a diversion and break into the tower while the guards were preoccupied. Henry's mother, Margaret Beaufort, would wait nearby, ready to receive the boys and spirit them to safety. Once the chaos died down, the Tudors planned to return the princes to their mother, Elizabeth Woodville, and help them flee the country. At the end of July of 1483, the plan was put into motion. Henry and Jasper Tudor stood at the banks of the Thames and lit their arrows on fire, hoping to set the thatch roof ablaze. They aimed skyward and fired. Uncle! Why isn't the roof catching? Shouldn't the blaze be bigger? It must be the fog. It's dampening the flames. Quickly, climb faster. Oh no! The fire's going out! We're not gonna have enough time. Fall back, Henry. We can try again when the weather's better. No! This is our chance! We're not gonna get another shot like this! We've gotta try to save them, no matter the cost! Are you willing to trade your life for theirs? Because that's what we're facing. Those guards will be on us the instant we set foot in the tower. They're just kids. They haven't gotten to live yet. All right. But if this goes south, it's on you. Understood? Yes, Uncle. Halt! This area is restricted. You're not allowed to be in here. In the end, according to this legend, the fire didn't give the Tudors nearly enough time. It's unclear what exactly went wrong during the possible rescue, but one thing is clear, the attempt was a complete failure. Whether or not the Tudors attempted to rescue the princes, by late summer 1483, Richard III realized something had to be done about his prisoners. Sometime in August of 1483, the two princes vanished without a trace. They were no longer seen playing in the courtyard, and their laughter faded from the halls. Their apartment in the tower sat empty, a still-life shrine to two lives interrupted. Some historians think tower guards, following instructions, threw the princes into the moat or the nearby River Thames to drown. Others believe they were poisoned by their uncle's hand, just like their father allegedly was. One hypothesis even suggests that the youngest prince, Richard of York, never died. A page boy disguised to look like Prince Richard could have died in his place in the tower, while the real prince lived out his life under an assumed name. However, the most prevalent theory is that three of King Richard's knights, particularly Sir James Tyrell, smothered Prince Edward V and Prince Richard of York in their sleep with feather-down pillows. According to Sir Thomas More, Tyrell even confessed to the murder before his execution in 1502. This proposed cause of death has become widely accepted, in part because the scenario was popularized in William Shakespeare's 1590s play, Richard III. The story was even carved into the prince's epitaph when it was added to Westminster Abbey in 1678. 
The epitaph is in Latin, but when translated, it reads, Here lie the relics of Edward V, King of England, and Richard, Duke of York, these brothers being confined in the Tower of London, and there, stifled with pillows, were privately and meanly buried by the order of their perfidious uncle, Richard the Usurper. Since the boys disappeared so suddenly, they were presumed to have been murdered. And while their fate remains a mystery, the public was quick to point their fingers at King Richard. By the beginning of September of 1483, the prince's murder was the talk of the town. Strangely enough, some have believed that Richard III himself might have spread the story that the boys were killed. According to this theory, Richard felt that if the public believed King Edward IV's heirs were dead, they would be more receptive and enthusiastic about his rule. Especially since, with the princes out of the picture, there wasn't anyone left to challenge Richard's claim to the throne. At least, that's what he thought. Cry foul! King Richard rumored to be behind the prince's royal murder! He killed his own family for the crown? Despicable! The whole house of York is corrupt. I won't bow to any of them. Isn't there a Lancaster who could take back the throne? There was, in fact. Henry Tudor, the prince's alleged rescuer and a descendant of King Edward III, up until September of 1483, the Tudors had been fiercely committed to restoring Prince Edward V to the throne. However, upon learning of his death, the family switched gears and began actively promoting Henry as a legitimate alternative to the increasingly unpopular King Richard. Interestingly enough, Henry Tudor was also one of the prime suspects in the prince's disappearance. He'd had the motive, a claim to the throne and the opportunity, the botched rescue attempt. Some historians believe the princes could have died in the rescue attempt, either by accident or by malice. Henry Tudor could have easily assassinated the boys himself in a bid to further cement his claim to the throne. However, this is unlikely, considering Elizabeth Woodville remained a close ally of the Tudors for the rest of her natural life. And while the boys' deaths devastated Elizabeth, the tragedy also fueled her hate and resentment of Richard III. Out for blood, Elizabeth committed herself wholly to the Tudor cause. In order to further strengthen Henry Tudor's claim to the throne, Elizabeth offered him her eldest daughter's hand in marriage. Sometime that fall, Richard III and Queen Anne went on a royal tour of England. When they rejoined the court, the atmosphere had completely changed. Their reception was frosty at best, and hostile at worst. The rumors of Richard's involvement in the young prince's murder had an adverse effect on his approval rating. Even France, who'd long been supporters of Richard, began to take precautions with its own king, 13-year-old Charles VIII. The gentry were fickle. Though they'd supported the prince's imprisonment and punishment only a few months earlier, they were now disgusted to learn that their king might have actually killed them. And none seemed more displeased than Richard's right-hand man, Henry Stafford, the Duke of Buckingham. Goodness me, you could cut the tension in this room with a knife. Tell me, gents, why the long faces? Haven't you heard? 
Surely someone told you? About my nephews? Oh, yes. A real loss, but life goes on. We mustn't allow ourselves to wallow in grief. We have a kingdom to run. Forget about the crown. They were family. Don't you want to see their killer brought to justice? Not particularly. Personally, I'm glad they're dead, aren't you? What? Look, they were a threat to everything we worked for. So someone took care of the problem. That's good news. Jesus, you'd think you'd be grateful. Oh my god. You... They were right about you. I was so blind. No, you're smart. You chose the winning side. And together, we'll finally realize my father's dream. A true Yorkist monarchy. I can't be part of this. Shortly after Henry Stafford defected and allied himself with Henry Tudor, the seeds of Richard's demise had just been sown. Coming up next, we'll learn about Stafford's uprising and explore the salacious details of Richard III's alleged incestuous romance with his niece. And now, back to the story. By the end of October 1483, Henry Stafford and Henry Tudor had organized a rebellion. Armed with a reported seven ships and 500 men, Tudor set sail for England, while Stafford coordinated uprisings in northern England and Wales. Unfortunately, a major storm brewed over the English Channel. Torrential winds and rocky waves pelted Tudor's ships. Barred from sailing any further, they were forced to turn around and return to France. When that same storm hit land, several major rivers flooded, stranding some of Stafford's troops in Wales. Unable to cross the River Severn to bring reinforcements, Stafford's army suffered and many of his supporters deserted. King Richard's military easily squashed the rebellion in their next battle. After his defeat, Stafford disguised himself and attempted to rejoin Henry Tudor. However, he was quickly captured and on November 2nd, 1483, he was executed for treason and beheaded. His death was a sudden and major blow to the struggling Tudor resistance. But the uprising, known as Buckingham's Rebellion, left Richard III shaken. Unwilling to take any more risks with King Edward IV's lineage, Richard passed the Titulus Regius in January of 1484, an act of parliament that officially illegitimized Elizabeth Woodville's marriage to his brother and stripped his nieces of their nobility. Powerless and utterly defeated, Elizabeth Woodville emerged from sanctuary sometime in 1484, likely after Richard III promised not to hurt or imprison any more of her children. On the surface, it appeared the two had finally reconciled, and Elizabeth's daughters were allowed to return to the royal court. Shortly after the Woodvilles rejoined the court, Richard III's head was turned by his eldest niece, 18-year-old Elizabeth of York. Charming, beautiful, and smart, she took after both of her parents in personality as well as countenance. Elizabeth of York was often in close contact with Richard's wife, Queen Anne. She was also frequently put into intimate situations with her uncle. Whenever Queen Anne was ill or away, Richard would attempt to woo her 
Initially charmed by her uncle's power and influence, Elizabeth of York gave in to Richard's advances, and the two began a salacious, forbidden romance. Or at least that's what people began to say. The best evidence for the affair comes from one of Elizabeth's letters to a friend, where she wrote, His excellence is my only joy and maker in this world. If these rumors were true, then this was an unlikely romance, considering Richard had her declared a bastard and killed several of her family members, including her younger brothers. Not to mention he was her uncle and married. However, just when things were starting to look up for Richard III, on April 9, 1484, an act of karma struck down his only son, Prince Edward of Middleham. Middleham's death was sudden and unexpected, and his cause of death remains officially unknown. Mm. I love you, Lizzie. I wish the morning didn't have to come. This moment would never have to end. It doesn't have to. We could be together. And with any luck, the sun grows within my belly as we speak. Elizabeth. Don't you Elizabeth me. I know it's too soon, but... My boy's not in the ground a month and you're already trying to replace him. You need an heir to secure the throne. I can give you one. But you're not my wife. It wouldn't count. No, I'm better than that barren old hag. What good is she if she can't bear you children? Maybe it's time she's put out to pasture? You better not be suggesting what I think you're suggesting. Come on, you're experienced now. All it takes is one little drop of poison and... Stop it! Oh, don't tell me you're getting cold feet. Or were my brothers the only ones you had it out for? Less than a year after his son's death, on March 16, 1485, Richard III's wife, Queen Anne, followed her son to the grave after a long illness. On the day she died, some say a solar eclipse plunged the world into darkness. To the people of England, this was a bad omen, one they perceived to mark King Richard's fall from heavenly grace. It didn't take long before nobility started crying murder once again. Rumor had it that since Anne had outserved her use, Richard poisoned her so he could marry and have children with his niece, Elizabeth of York. However, historians today believe it's most likely that Anne Neville died from an illness like tuberculosis. Regardless of Anne's cause of death, everyone would have objected to Richard III and Elizabeth of York as a pair. Not only was she immediate family, but due to Richard's own executive order, she was also no longer considered noble-born and was therefore not fit to marry a king. The backlash against the coupling was so strong that Richard III reportedly had to make a public statement denying their relationship in order to save face. If this is true, then Elizabeth would have been heartbroken. <laughs> there, there. Let it all out. He broke my heart, Mom. I thought he loved me. <laughs> mm-hmm. We were supposed to get married. Look, he gave me this ring and everything. <laughs> and, and he... And then he 
one and said that it was all made up. But my feelings weren't made up. You really care about him. What am I going to do? What if I'm pregnant? I'll be ruined! Please, God, please don't make me pregnant. I promise I'll be better. I'll even empty the toilet buckets. Just please, please, please don't make me pregnant. Lizzie, darling, look at me. You're going to be fine. You did the right thing coming home. I'm just glad you got out of there before it was too late. He really killed Edward and Richie, didn't he? I think so. <laughs> Angry and brokenhearted, Elizabeth of York left court and crawled back to her mother, just in time for the Tudor Rebellion to hit its stride. The world, as the Lancasters and the Yorks knew it, would change forever on August 22, 1485, during the Battle of Bosworth Field the last major battle of the 32-year War of the Roses, which had destroyed countless lives. King Richard III versus Henry Tudor. The showdown to end all showdowns. One final power struggle, winner take all. The two men met on Bosworth Field in Leicester. Initially, King Richard's army vastly outnumbered Henry Tudor's array, bolstered by the smaller troops of various earls and dukes from the royal court. However, many of these nobles were unhappy with Richard III's tenure and disagreed with his underhanded methods. They were actively looking for a way to remove Richard from power, but worried Henry Tudor wouldn't be able to turn the tide of war in his favor with a meager, starved army of supporters. As the battle raged on, Henry's militia proved to be the lovable underdogs, they more than held their own against Richard's onslaught and managed to push back in some instances. Impressed with Tudor's military prowess, some of King Richard's nobles saw potential in his rebellion and changed their tune. They switched sides in the middle of the battle. Richard III was crushed by Henry Tudor's army and died when his horse was cut down from under him. He'd be the last king in British history to ever fall in combat. Some say his death was karmic retribution for his nephew's murders. Some say he was unfairly villainized and that he died as he lived, with terrible luck. Henry Tudor claimed the throne by right of combat, crowning himself on top of Crown Hill with King Richard's bloody diadem. His victory effectively ended the War of the Roses, allowing England to move past the late Middle Ages and into the Tudor period. And though Henry couldn't bring the princes in the tower back from the dead, he restored their honor in death. As king, Henry repealed Titulus Regius, officially restoring Edward IV's royal legacy. In 1674, two skeletons were found in a wooden box, buried underneath the White Tower staircase inside the Tower of London. The bones are believed to belong to the princes. However, since then, the British monarchy has declined DNA tests, so we still don't know for sure if they are, in fact, the missing princes. Given the overwhelming evidence, I think Richard III probably killed the princes. He had the most to gain from their deaths, and it speaks volumes that his own court turned on him in less than a year. 
He was a nasty person and absolutely a product of his incestuous, power-thirsty family environment. I agree. Although historians are deeply divided in their impressions of Richard III, I think there's just too much circumstantial evidence. Plus, he tried to marry his niece. He definitely could have killed his own family if it served his self-interest. The tragedy of the princes in the tower remains one of Britain's most fascinating and enduring unsolved murders. It's a real-life parable of how power corrupts absolutely, and it still rings true today. Prince Edward V and Prince Richard of York were mere pawns in a much bigger political game, and they were killed simply for being born. No one was brought to justice for their murders, and to this day, their bodies still haven't been officially identified. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Unsolved Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unsolved Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Tracy Nicoletti, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Bill Butts, K.G. Tang, Rebecca Thomas, Dan Velasquez, and Jen Wong. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed these episodes and want to hear more, remember to follow Unsolved Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes air weekly every Tuesday.